Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Delighted to welcome my first guest uh, to the studio. He'll be a man quite familiar to a lot of you, particularly if you are familiar with racing in Scandinavia or familiar with the work of race readers here in Great Britain because he's been a great exponent of both. He began life as an apprentice jockey, very successful apprentice jockey as well, with the great late uh, Bernard Van Kutzum, and then, uh, looking for more opportunities, plied his trade in Norway and Sweden, where he was champion jockey no fewer than eight times. He is now, I'm not sure how he takes this, best known as William Buick's dad, but he was a, a great sportsman in his own right. I'd like to welcome him to Luck on Sunday. Walter Buick, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Yeah, that's a very good description of myself. Nobody really knew who I was until Junior came along, but there we are. I had my days in the sun as well. You absolutely had your days yeah. in the sun. Yeah. Uh, not many people then knew an awful lot about racing in, in Scandinavia. We know a bit more about it now, however. We do. Um, certainly, I didn't. I hadn't a clue. But in those days, I started, as you quite rightly said, with Bernard Van Kutzum. He didn't have the big strings that we have now. We had 35 maximum amount of horses. And um, no all-weather racing. It was March until November. That was it. He didn't have the same opportunities that the kids have now. Um, I had ridden 10 winners... But Willie Carson was taken on as Lord Derby's jockey. Then the great Al Piggott came along, and he was riding what he wanted to ride, horses like Park Top, Carabas, and so forth. And I just took a look at things and thought to myself, hmm, there's not going to be much left. After Lester Piggott and Willie Carson and Willie. have had their say. How, how well do you remember those days and the impact that those two men had on the sport? Like it was yesterday. They were the greatest days of my life. I left home at the age of 15, knew absolutely nothing about riding. I knew a little bit about horse racing. I'd left school and decided that this is what I'm going to do. And where was home? Home was a small town on the east coast of Scotland called Arbroath. Mm -hmm. No racetrack. The nearest racetrack was obviously Edinburgh, Musselburgh, as it's now known. Um, I'd never ridden. Uh, it was just the fact that I, I was the right size to start with. Um, I th I'm sure my mother had other plans for me, but sadly she passed away when I was 12 years of age, and I kind of I decided there and then that I'm going to have a go at this. But things were different then. None of my family knew anything about horse racing. You know, how do I get into this? There were no career officers or anything at, the, at my school at any school in those days. You kind of made your own way. So I had an uncle that knew a little bit about the game, and I asked him, how do I... So we decide, he advised me to write to two or three trainers, which I duly did. Bernard Van Kutzen was one of them. Geoffrey Brooke, who trained in Newmarket at that time, was another. And Captain Cecil Boyd Rochford. Well, the only nice letter I got back was from Bernard Van Kutzen. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was it. So I went there at the age of 15, and because he was a man of means, he bought ponies for us to ride. There were three, three of us that started on the same day. Um, and I was the one that was absolutely clueless about how to ride a horse, never mind racehorses. So first of all, he sent us to a, a very nice lady called Anne Hammond in Stetchworth, where we had riding lessons. But he, he was a man of means. He could, he could pay for that. 
And I'll never forget it, there were three of us, and I was the last to leave. Once you became proficient, he obviously didn't want to carry on paying for you once you could ride. But I was last, <laughs> I was the, the odd man out. I was there for ages because I just couldn't get it. But particularly given the news this week and what we talk about in terms of looking after the, the workforce in the sport now, it's, it's quite heartening to hear that even back then you were being looked after like that by, by your employer. Absolutely. And that he felt that responsibility to nurturing your career and nurturing you as a person. Um, yes, both as a jockey and as a person. Um, I just loved every single minute of it. We were well cared for. <clears throat> Bernard was actually very good to me. The only, I often say, if only. First of all, I started at the wrong stable to become a budding jockey because it was a gambling yard and they couldn't afford to make too many mistakes by having a, an inexperienced claimer on board when, they, when, they, when the guys decided that we're going we're gonna to have a, a punt on this, which Bernard liked to do. Uh, when you say it was a gambling yard, and uh, people talk about gambling yards now, then a gambling yard meant serious money, and it didn't go down that often. And when it did go down, this was the, a year or two they didn't leave Depended it behind. On. You see, Bernard was a member of the Clermont's Club. People like David Aspinall, who, yep. who ran it. You had uh, one of our owners was a, a gentleman called David Montague, mm -hmm. a big punter. Um, Lord Derby, who liked to punt. That's John, the uncle of the present Lord Derby. And they, they liked to gamble. Um, Lord Lucan. He was obviously a member of the Clermont Club. We never saw him because he never got connected with the racehorses. But we saw a lot of this, these type of people. Yeah. And I laugh now, but I, I sometimes think that perhaps when they had a losing time at the tables, they sort of got together and said, Bernard, we've got to get some of this back. You'll have to, you'll have to set one up or something. So um, whether that's right or not, but that, that's an afterthought that I've had. And anyway, I think Bernard thought I was probably better as a jockey than I actually was because I didn't have a lot of experience. And my first early winners, they were steering jobs. I didn't have to do very much. So the first time that I rode, and I was still claiming seven, mind you, mm -hmm. and it was a little bit of a, a thing that you, you didn't know but you did know. This one has been back today. And I remember in particular, I rode a filly at Yarmouth, who'd uh, been well prepared. She was well handicapped. And the money was on. Before the days of starting stalls, a mile and a half, three-year-old handicap, she, get, she got in there with no weight. I claimed seven. And I knew Bernard was on because when he was nervous, his fingers used to. And in the paddock, I, I thought, oh, God, the money is on. So anyway, off we go. The worst thing possible happened. She whipped round at the barrier and lost, oh. lost the race right there. He never spoke to me all the way home. It was a long trip back from Yarmouth in the Bentley, I can assure you. <laughs> but, you know, I was inexperienced. And the other times, I must say that when I rode anything that I'm quite sure the, the money was on, I brought the bacon home, you know. But they were well placed, they were well handicapped, and with my £7, it made them basically certainties. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back, you're watching Luck on Sunday. Delighted to welcome back Walter Buick to the Luck on Sunday studio, and to join him, Ian Bartlett, LOS regular, and William Darby, who I think... William did this very show last year. I'm not yes, quite sure whether the 12 months has gone, but here we go. are on the, yeah, the cusp yeah, of another wonderful yeah. week. Delighted to be back. Thank you. And how's it all going? All good? Yeah, really looking forward to the week ahead. Um, we had a bit of rain last week, like the rest of the, the, rest of the country, so um, we've just changed the ground this morning to good ground. Forecast looks largely favourable for the week ahead, largely dry week, maybe the odd shower around. Sort of lovely temperatures around 19 degrees, so set fair for what looks like a cracking week of racing action. The Yorkshire folk will be saying, Barty, sun shall shine on the righteous. righteous and, yes. and we hope it does. Um, 
I am really looking forward to next week. Absolutely galaxy of stars. Are you are you partaking? I won't be there. I should be watching. Excellent. Um, uh, with fascination because it's a it's a, yeah. a, a great meeting and uh, virtually every star there is possible is there and there's a lot of money to be won. I, I, how how. Oh. So we're getting right into it so right yeah. off the bat, if you like. Yeah. How important do you think that minimum guaranteed prize money for each and every race has become over the last two or three years? Yeah, I think very important, Nick, and a, and a real commitment by the York Race Committee to try and attract the best best of horses to the to the Navesmar and ensure that every race is is as competitive and as interesting as it can be. So no race less than seventy thousand pound. The richest maiden in the country, the richest apprentice race. Um, the richest nursery, and also those flagship flagship races. I think three races have got a million pounds at stake if you include the Weatherby's Hamilton Lonsdale Cup on the Friday for Stradivarius. Um, and and what a lineup looked set to be head, headed our way. We looked at the Longines ratings the other day, so we've got the highest rated rate horse in the world in in Crystal Ocean heading our way, the highest rated mare in Enable, the highest rated filly in Magical the highest rated stayer in Stradivarius, and the two top rated sprinters in Europe in Tensor Rins and Batash, obviously heading for the Cornwall Nunthorpe. So a mouth-watering prospect for any race fan, and hopefully everyone watching will be able to come and experience the Naismar or watch on Racing TV or ITV. Um, it looks like a mouth-watering set-up for the week. Oh, the, one of the most intriguing um, races this year clearly is the Million Pound Skybet Evil yeah. on on Saturday, and it's a race that whose formation and development has attracted quite a bit of debate. But I think everyone's really looking forward to seeing how it's going to shake down in in mm. years to come. When mm. you look at the the entries as things stand, what are your observations relative to yeah. what you conceived as the race should be? I think a huge amount of excitement, as you say, it's a, it's it's been in the formation for for a year or so now, and and something that we're we're very proud to have sort of galvanised and taken forward following on from the request from the BHA to look at it and see if we could create a big stayers handicap in, in, in Europe to, to, to emulate you know, the races elsewhere in the world that, along those lines. And, and what we've seen is a, a very high quality field in terms of ratings. So last year the lowest rated horse to get in was 102. This year it looks like being 105 or 106. So real sort of group race quality horses racing racing on handicapped terms. So we've invested in the new stalls, so we've got 22 horses going for the race. Um, some, all of them have, have raced, so, so, so have been exposed and, and have their handicap marks exposed, if you like. Mm. So um, it looks like a fascinating renewal, great partnership with Skybet. And, and really looking forward to next Saturday, which, as I say, will be a culmination of an awful lot of hard work by an awful lot of people and, 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 and supporters of the race. And, and, yeah, I think it should be a fascinating prospect. And as the chief executive of a major race course, you have to be uh, all over the European pattern and understand all the ramifications within. Yeah. Uh, from your point of view, would, would you like to see a situation, a la the Melbourne Cup, where you're running a Group 1 handicap? I, d I don't think so. I, I don't think that's not our ambition. There is no such thing in Europe as a Group 1 handicap. What we want to do is run a, a, a race that engages horsemen and, and connections, that engages the racing public, both the, those that just want to see the spectacle of the race and those that want to have a bet on the race. So that's our ambition. Um, uh, within our race programme that has a huge amount of stakes races, we obviously as a race course invest most of our money in stakes races and are very proud to do that. Um, so, so it's about creating a flagship standout race that people take notice of, that galvanises the, the, the racing world and our local community as well. The Ebor is our most famous race. It dates back to 1842. It's part of the fabric of the city and we want to make sure yeah. it very much connects with the city and the region. Are you feeling that? Are you feeling that the city's more engaged with it? Are you, are you getting that from yeah. sort of local news and Yeah, a huge amount media? of excitement and we're running something called the Ebor Community Fund this year where 22 charities and community groups in York are going to connect to one of the runners and, and if that horse then wins they get a £5,000 
cash grant for their project supported by us and Skybet. So, so, you know, there's been a lot of excitement around that locally, a lot of, you know, the big names coming, um, coming back as well. Mustajir from, from Jerlines, his yard, who was fourth last year, coming back for the race. Weekender, who's second, coming back. So, so there's that longevity to, to, to the recognisable names in the sport. So, yeah, a huge amount of excitement in our region and, and hopefully across the racing world. And there's no uh, horse race name more recognisable at the moment than the great Enable, who's looking for another victory in the Yorkshire Oaks, a race she won two years ago en route to her first arc. And interesting that John Gosden Barty has taken this route rather than putting her in the, in the Judmont International. Um, are you surprised, disappointed, think it's the right decision, wrong decision? Where would you have gone with her? Well, he did say straight after her victory in the Eclipse that this is where he wanted to go, so a mile and a half rather than the um, a mile two and a half furlongs. Um, and, I mean, th with the, the greatest director of the job on International, their aim is three arcs. No, no horse has ever done that. And uh, that's obviously w what, uh, well, from beginning of October or the first Sunday in October last year is what they wanted to go and do. Um, uh, it looks uh, like um, it might not be as easy, perhaps, as he might have assumed. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but who knows? We haven't got the final declared uh, field yet. But no, I mean it's good. It's good, really good to see her uh, again on a race course because, by the likelihood, is three times, four times max. Uh, so, and you need to see the good ones as often as possible. I, I think the fact that the, the, the Coolmore are, are chucking in magical into this race sort of makes the week in a way. Um, Walter, it's the stuff dreams are made of for Absolutely. Williams. He's, he's got a good race for the Judmont International. He's got a, a great race for the Yorkshire Oaks. Fantastic, Oaks fantastic. Um, you know, as as Barty says, it'll be great to see this mare out again. Enabled, she is. Uh, she's just amazing. But um, as as you said, that uh, Aidan O'Brien has put magical in, and um, as Barty said again, I don't think it's quite as easy as uh, JHMG thought originally. Um, it's going to be a great race. And something a, to savour. At a mile and a half, sure, we know Enable's brilliant at a mile and a half, but we know that Magical will push her harder at a mile and a half, arguably, than she did at a mile and a quarter in the Eclipse. For sure. And um, York being the race course it is, it's, it's a very fair race course. I, I love York because normally the best horse wins. There's no excuses. Um, and it's just going to be... Well, we can look forward to some wonderful... Wonderful horse races uh, during the week. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing her again because, you know, when I saw her turn up at Ascot, she looked big and, well, bigger than ever before. You know, she looked fantastic in her skin in every single way. And she's so laid back, isn't she? She's the, the ultimate racing machine. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Batash has got a fight on, headed by Mabs Cross. Alfred Elfini in the centre, running a huge race. Heads up, heads down, far side, Alfred Elfini, near side, Mabs Cross. Mabs Cross and Alfred Elfini have gone past together in the Nunthorpe. Michael heading back to York again. So close with, with Mabs Cross, you must be looking forward. Yes, as you say, she's in good form and she looks well, so... Um, it's nice to be going there with a live chance again, but you know, under no illusions, it's a good race again. Mm. And this year she's looked as good, hasn't she? she? In the Palace House, under a penalty first time out, that, that was a smart performance. It was, yeah, she did. We were really pleased with her that day. She, she, she battled on. And then, as obviously, Ascot, she ran well again. But I just felt she travelled too well in the middle of the race, and I'd rather see her off the bridle, yeah. so a, a fast early pace suits her. It's, it's coming to our home ground, isn't it, York? Yeah, yeah, I mean, listen, she ran her heart out and, you know, it was heartbreaking what happened at York, but it would be nice to go there and put things right. But as I say, under no illusions, it's a tough race. I'll never forget it, the, the, the photo finish. I was out on the track with yourself yeah. and how long it went on for. <clears throat> yeah, I'll never forget walking off the grandstands and walking into the parade ring and you were one of the first people I saw and of course you said oh she's definitely won and I said ah, let's wait for the result I could have floored you when the result came but uh, no it, it seemed to take forever here is the result of the photo finish for first place first number one Alpha Delfini no Alpha Delfini this time around it just shows you just to get them back there it, it, it's so hard isn't it yeah, it's hard with any horse, but especially at this level, because um, the pressure's on, you know. But 
she's had a good she had a little break after Ascot she's she's back in in good work and uh, fresh and well and so no we're happy with her everybody's always going to ask it how does she compare what she like with compared to Mecca's Angel I mean, the two different horses. I mean, Mecca's Angel was was all about speed, early speed, and and, and not being far away at any stage. This filly, she she wants a fast pace to aim at, and she likes to to come late. So, she's she's very similar with her temperament. She gets buzzed up just before a race, but uh, both very very straightforward fillies to train. She ran first time out of Pontefract, finished eighth of ten. Mm. Albeit got hampered, but what were you thinking when you when you went to Pontefract when she made her debut? When did you realise she was special? Well, we knew she had ability before she ran, and, and when she went to Pontefract, we were sort of thinking, well, she'll she'll be in the first three or four. Um, and she jumped sluggish, which she's done in the past, and, and she just she got hampered, and it just didn't happen. So, I mean, she, we didn't expect her to be as good. We thought she was a good filly, but she's she just kept improving with every race. Got Peter Thirst next time out. So, obviously, you, you, Group 1s were, were a long way down the line then. There were, there were, there were a long way down the line. I mean, it was really when, you know, we went to the the race at Musselburgh that had been moved from the abandonment of yeah. air, and she was quite impressive there when she won that. And then, you know, we thought she's this filly could go on next year, and which she did. She did. She went on the following year, and you know, we can't look back. And physically, compared to this time last year, I think she's a bit stronger. I do. I think she's she's a stronger filly. Um, she's great in her head. So, no, we're very pleased with her. Five furlongs York, in a dream, sort of halfway. You'd like to be behind the bridle, looking like you're, looking like you're going to struggle a little bit because you know that she'll finish off, and she's like that. Yeah, that's what we want. I wouldn't want to see her sort of uh, travelling over strongly in the middle of the race. I'd rather see her just off it, as you say, behind the bridle, and then we know she'll have a finish. And and let's just hope that the the gaps know there's plenty of time to to close the gap with, obviously Batash and and ten sovereigns, ten sovereigns, yeah. Um, Going there, obviously, after Mecca's Angel win the twice, and last year so close, it's one of your local tracks. It's a big deal, mm. the Ebor Festival. Is it more pressure? Can you enjoy it? Um, yeah, I mean, you get nerves. Everyone does in races like that, but you've got to enjoy it. And the main thing is to get her there in A1 form, and after that, it's 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 out of our hands, really. Ground-wise? Just good ground would be perfect. I wouldn't want I wouldn't want it extremes either way. I wouldn't want it too firm and I wouldn't want it too soft. But the way this weather looks, I think York could be just perfect ground. And let the best horse win. Yeah, as long as it's her. <laughs> Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equuel Dubai. And one of the key talking points this week, and one which I'll be asking my panel about a little later, is the leaking of the comprehensive review and report into bloodstock sales practices in this country, conducted by two uh, important uh, men who have been involved in, in policing all manner uh, of, of different aspects of public life in the, in the last few years. And the BHA are not happy that this report has been leaked, but it was leaked to the Racing Post, and Lee Mottishead got a, a great scoop and, and splashed it all across the paper, and it's caused the sort of debate that you would expect. But what now for the future of the bloodstock industry, and what ramifications will the leaking of this report, and the report itself, when we actually find out the full detail of it, have for bloodstock sales moving forward, and how will practices within the sale ring change as a result? Well, the right man to ask is the Group Chief Executive of Goffs, one of the two uh, big sales uh, houses in, in Ireland and England, Henry Beebe, who joins us on the line now. Henry, good morning. Good morning, Nick. I know you're uh, in Deauville at the moment, so I'm hoping the line is, the line is strong and you can, you can, you can hear me well. Uh, first, first of all, what was your reaction, having been involved in the talks with the, with the BHA, who were sort of trying to uh, establish more of a, a hold on, on practices inside the sale ring and, and the probity of, of horses being bought and sold. What sort of impact do you think that the, the, this report is going to have? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a positive move. Um, no industry is, is beyond reproach. No industry should ever say that they don't need to be uh, think about what happens and how, how they conduct themselves. So we've largely welcomed the BHA review. We've been uh, proactive uh, participants. You know, I've spent about a cumulative total of about 12 hours with uh, the two gentlemen you referenced and Nick Rust 
uh, with the BHA uh, discussing, and hopefully trying to educate a little bit as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we welcome it. And I think, you know, the good news that's come out of it and what you've seen in the leak that you referred to is that the headline in the Racing Post could have been um, the bloodstock industry gets 95% approval rating because what I found interesting and quite reassuring in, in, in some, some ways was that the review found that the industry was largely well-run, very transparent. And I think the phrase they used was there was maybe 5% bad apples. Now, I think if you looked at any industry, any walk of life, and you said there was 5% bad apples, people wouldn't be surprised. That, that said, we should not shy away from, nor are we shying away from, uh, some of the points that have been made. We're always looking to improve. We're always looking to evolve. Uh, and I think that's why there's been a very cooperative uh, response by the bloodstock industry to the BHA's call to, to come together. And we spent, I think, six or seven hours locked in a room in Newmarket last week uh, discussing the review, listening to the feedback, um, and debating what the next steps are. So, you know, we, we're always looking. Nobody's beyond improving. We're always looking to improve. We're always looking to get better. Uh, and hopefully the end result is that we do end up with uh, an even better industry than we have. Uh, that said, we would, you know, we'd proudly say that we work to the mm -hmm. highest standards across the industry. Uh, and certainly from a golf's point of view, I can uh, hold my hands up and say that's the case. I, I mean, I, I'm looking through this. I see a lot of um, general commentary on this, but, but relatively few specifics in terms of what actually goes on that the investigating team were, were unhappy with. What I want to try and find out is, is how bloodstock sales practices are going to change, if at all, or whether this report's been, you know, for want of a better phrase, a waste of time. I mean, it says the current regulation of the bloodstock industry is not fit for purpose, with agents, in effect, entirely unregulated. Is there, therefore, now an industry-wide agreement that there is going to be a code of practice to replace the existing one? Yes, I think, to try and the last point first, absolutely. I think, I think we've all accepted that... You know, like anything, things need to be constantly, constantly reviewed, updated, modified. And we've looked at the code of practice that has been in place for now 10 years. It was first produced in 2004, uh, then updated in 2009. And I think perhaps we've all slightly uh, let, let, let it go on too long without a proper review. So I think, you know, one of the key results from this will hopefully be uh, a revised, uh, probably more expanded code of practice that's a little bit more specific uh, than has teeth. But, um, you know, one of the frustrations is, as you, as you referenced, is the generalization that's been going on and the frustration for those of us directly involved in the thoroughbred industry and the buying and selling of thoroughbred racehorses in Britain and Ireland is the fact that by its nature, this has been too general. Uh, and, and so, you know, everyone's felt they're rather tainted with the same brush. And I go back to the point, the review finds out or concludes that 95% of the industry is working to very, very high standards of ethics and, you know, and there's enormous integrity. So it's a very small minority we're focusing on, and that's been a, that's been a frustration. So a new code of practice is certainly something that, you know, all the, all the representatives of the industry that turned up last week uh, would welcome. We've said to the BHA we will help in any way we can to, to, to draw up the revised uh, code uh, and to make sure that it is fit for purpose, given that there was a there, there is a view that the current code is now well. If it's not fit, maybe it's not not fit for purpose, but it's probably out of date. And, and if the you know the review team made up of two you know, senior former policemen uh, and people who've investigated sporting irregularities before, if there if there is anecdotal testimony of corrupt practice having taken place. Um, surely that, that anecdotal testimony should be acted upon, and, and you would back that. Oh, 100%. You know, and I think, I think if you were to ask Nick Rust or the BHA, uh, they would tell you that they, felt, they feel that they've probably failed to an extent by not getting involved with some of the, some of the things that they have been told about. You know, but, but that's always the issue. We, we all have choices to make in life. And if, you're, if you or I are walking down the street one evening and we see, we see people... You know, somebody setting about somebody beating them up. We have a number of options. One is to run across and help. Another is to call the police, uh, and the other is to completely ignore it. So, you know, we, we shouldn't be taking. None of us should be taking the third option. If there are corrupt practices, there's nobody that I know that I work with in the business who says, "Yeah, that's fine. You know, it doesn't doesn't really matter." Yes, it matters. You know, as an auctioneer, 34 years' experience, I've probably offered, I don't know, 75,000 horses in my career. You know, I, I trade as Goss does and as the other auction houses and bloodstock agents. We trade on our integrity. So we're asking people to make judgments about, you know, the service we provide. You know, and of course, I'm an auctioneer, so I wouldn't say this, wouldn't I? But I would contend that the auction, 
the auction process is the most transparent. You know, it's, it's shown live on uh, online the whole time, whether you're at, in Newmarket or in, in County Kildare or in Doncaster. Yeah, they're, they're all there. We have press watching every single lot. We put them on our website. We announce what's going on. Um, you know, but I, I, again, going back to what I said before, um, you know, we think we're doing as well as we can, but we can always do better. And so that's why we have embraced this review. We've listened to, as you say, the two experienced policemen who've, who've come up with some suggestions. You know, they've been they've been good enough and sensible enough to listen to our feedback. And there were two or three things that we heard last week. We just said, you know, we, we don't think that's necessarily relevant. But if you're saying something else happens uh, and you have evidence for it, then of course we should act collaboratively together in the spirit of cooperation. I mean, it behoves us all uh, to be able to uh, be able to stand behind what we do. And, you know, whether you're a bloodstock agent, a trainer, an owner, you know, Mr. Weld, when he comes on, he's, he's, he's involved in trying to get people involved in the industry. William Darby is sitting with you. He wants people to come racing and come racing with confidence. I'm an auctioneer. I want to sell horses all over the world, which is what we do. Bloodstock agents want to do the same. So it behoves us all to work together collectively uh, in Britain and Ireland to make sure that people have confidence. And if there's, ever, if there's an undermining of confidence, uh, then we would be, we would be certainly naive and probably, you know, negligent to our to our employers and shareholders if we didn't confront the issues that have been presented to us. And indeed, that's what we're doing. And, you know, part of the frustration, Nick, with this leak, is not that the stuff's out there. You know, because people are talking about things. I, I don't mind that. If people want to talk, they can talk. The frustration here is we are. We are in the middle of this process. We were working hard. As I said, we spent six or seven hours as a group, represented the owners, the trainers, the agents, the breeders, the sales companies, with the BHA and the lead, um, the man who led the review, uh, you know, in a room. And we got to a stage and said, right, the next step is this. And we decided that we would, we would work quickly and, and, and efficiently to produce a new code and to come up with findings that everybody, the BHA and all the constituent bodies, uh, were, were, were happy to stand behind and endorse. And then suddenly, you know, the, the leak comes out. And, you know, if you're, if you're investigating or reviewing an integrity and then somebody goes and leaks behind your back, then I would say I would question the integrity of that organization or individual that did that. We all found that very frustrating because, you know, the review's been going on a while now. My frustration, I'm an impatient person by nature, is that it's taken as long to get to where we are now, but so be it. Um, but we are where we are now, and I think, you know, the, what the industry wants to see is some action, some results, and some conclusions. But leaking to papers and then generalizing and nobody being specific is, is really counterproductive, in my view, because it, it kind of puts everybody on the defensive, whereas we were on the front foot last week, and suddenly now we're reading in the paper. And again, I'm not blaming anybody necessarily, but I, it's frustrating when you get these generalizations. You know, well, I, well, the the the, the phrases that have come out this there, week, yeah, Henry, from yeah. from from you know from the industry's point of view, or someone who doesn't who isn't involved deeply in the in the sales process, the the, the two sort of stories that will resonate most are um, a, a code of silence that is shared by people within the industry to allow uh, underhand practice to continue, and um, Philip Cooper, who was involved in in last year's uh, initial. Uh, expression of, of discomfort with the sales ring coming out again and saying, and, and she cited Doncaster particularly as, as, as a vendor being, being bullied. Uh, t for you as a, as a group chief executive of Goffs, how, how, do you, how do you react to that? Well, the, the latter case with, with, with Mrs. Cooper, you know, hurt deeply. I was, you know, my, my issue with that, Nick, being very frank with you, is that the first that I knew that this specific person, Mrs. Cooper, felt intimidated or bullied or whatever was the phrase she used, I haven't got the paper in front of me, at a sale that I run was when I read about it in the Racing Post yesterday. So what I would have said to Mrs. Cooper is, you know, you, if, you, if you felt that under attack at a sale that I am overseeing as the chief executive, as you say, of the auction house that runs that sale at Doncaster, you know, you could have come and spoken to me. You know, if she said in the paper yesterday... Um, you know, I felt intimidated and I went to the management or Henry Beebe specifically and he did nothing. Then, you know, I'd have some questions to answer. But, you know, that's the problem. I, I don't know the specifics of that. You know, when I get back to, to, to Ireland, um, I'll probably ring her to try and chat to her. What can we learn from that? Um, so, you know, that is, a, that is a frustration. But, you know, we, we go back to what the BAJ are doing. You know, the industry has not turned its back on this. The industry is live to this. The industry is confronting this. You know, the BHA, by their own admission, did not have jurisdiction over the bloodstock industry, and that's fine. 
So, but rather than us say you haven't got jurisdiction, we're not talking to you. What we've done as an industry is turned around back to them and said, of course, you know, if if, if you think there are things that that need to be improved, and it's in the interest of British and Irish racing or British racing for the BHA's point of view, then we are absolutely linked. I mean, I, 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 it's my entire life. It's the entire life of all sorts of people. You know, William Darby, Dermot Wells, are you two of your guests? You know, it's their life. So we all want the industry to be seen in a better light, to improve, to evolve. And, you know, my raison d'etre is going out to sell thoroughbred racehorses on behalf of the vendors that are kind enough to employ us. We travel the world. We get buyers from 20, 30 countries every year. And we need people to have confidence in our processes. So that's why we've so, you know, proactively and confidently embraced it. And, you know, it, again, there's nothing to hide. You know, I, I don't... I don't recognise some of the things that have been said because, you know, as I said earlier, we as an auction house trade on our integrity. Goss has been around since 1866. Tattersall's been around for another 100 years. We worked to very high standards. Between the two of us, I think we sold something like £500 million worth of thoroughbred racehorses every year. Um, and people keep coming back. And the reason they come back is they have confidence. And, you know, when you get people like, you know, these artists, the other cars, the Maxim family, you know, China Horse Club, Lady Bamford, Chiefly Park Stud, people, you know, who work... In all walks of life, coming constantly back to the sales run by Tattersalls and Goffs in Britain and Ireland, that's, that's a bit of confidence in itself. But again, I go back to the fact that doesn't mean we can't always get better. And as an industry, we will continue to work together. But one, one message is to the BHA, which we said is we will work with you, we'll help you. But you've got to make sure you, 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 know, you run a tight ship yourself. And allowing leaks to happen, they can be as cross as they like. But it happened on their watch. We were working with them. We are working with them. We're going to try to continue to work with them. But they can't, they can't allow things to be leaked like that. I don't know who leaked it. We've asked the BHA to make sure they find out who leaked uh, this report because, as I say, we weren't finished. We're halfway through. And the racing post will be able to cover in full and talk to anybody they want to when we finish, which hopefully will be soon. As I said earlier, the process is frustrating because we'd like to be able to, to deal with it and build up even more confidence and move forward. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Mark, we're here to chat about runners ahead of the Welcome to Yorkshire Ebor Festival, and you head into the meeting with your team in tremendous form on the back of that record-breaking uh, month in July. Yeah, you know, I get very nervous when I keep thinking about just how many winners we've, we've had in the last six weeks. But even going into Goodwood, I was saying, you know, I was worried that we couldn't have such a strong team because the horses had run so much and won so much. Here we are a further two weeks or three weeks on and um, they're still running really well. Uh, maybe not quite in the same numbers, but yeah, yeah, it's great. They seem to be in tremendous form. And there's a little bit of talk in the press about potential for another record to fall, but um, that too far out to be focusing on most winners in a calendar year? Um, I think it's really important not to focus on it because uh, you know, while I said many times last year that of course winners are important, it's the most important thing, it's what the horse racing is all about, um, but actually chasing the records is not important, you know, it's very uh, important for us to concentrate on the individual horses, you know, and, and I'm not, I can guarantee to you, I'm not going to run horses that I wouldn't otherwise have run just to try and break a record. Mm. What you certainly can focus on is the Weibo uh, Festival, and you go there, as I say, with a, a strong team, particularly in a couple of million-pound races. How important is it to have that level of prize money up for grabs at these meetings? Oh, I think I, I can't wait to see what the Eber turns out like. Because generally, in the past, I'd have been against the idea that we should have handicaps with that sort of money involved. Um, but yeah, this is going to be a tremendous race. It's, you know, it's shown what can happen when you put that sort of uh, prize money up for grabs. We've got really top-class horses lining up for the Eber. It looks like it's going to be a very, very narrow weight range. And you know, we've got horses like Making Miracles, Chester Cup winner, struggling to get in, um, which you know, shows you it really is a genuine top-class race. I assume that King's advice is almost certain to run, and have you had a horse with a much better attitude than that? Oh, just fantastic. I don't. You know, I, I know you start to sort of build characteristics into them um, as they they get good and they win. But uh, that race at Goodwood, if ever there's a horse that looked like it was sticking its head out to try and, and be in front, 
um, it was him. And we said, you know, the, uh, the more Joe just threw the reins at him, the harder he tried. And uh, it was tremendous to watch. It's fantastic to have a horse that's, that's risen so far in the weights and, and is still winning. I think, uh, was it three runs ago when he won at Goodwood and would have would have said, you know, that's maybe him coming to the the the, the end of his tether. Um, and then he's risen twice since and won again. And uh, so, you know, absolutely deserves to be in the Ebor, um, deserves to win it, it'd be great. Yeah, 71 to 113 already. I guess you can hope rather than expect that there's a little bit more improvement. Yeah, you can you can never expect improvement. Um, but you can just, you know, I think the, the, the main thing to, to hope is you know, handicapping is, to my mind, is an awful lot about about class uh, rather than the when you start discussing you know, whether the three pounds made a difference to enable or not. I'm not certain that it does really at at, at that level. Once you're you're all running in the, the the against horses of the same class, I'm not sure it's going to make any difference. He's demonstrated he can compete at that level. And I'm sure he's going to be competitive in the EVA. Whether he can win it or not, that's a different story. The Judmont International, you've got El Arkham, a horse who has really thrived and progressed during the course of this year. And he's an extremely special horse to you and your team. Yeah, he's very special to us. You know, for the minute he arrived, um, we've had other uh, progeny of attractions, but this one looks so like his mother. And by Frankel, you know, it was a pedigree to die for. And as a two-year-old, he looked like you know, he was everything we dreamed of. And he went. we went to the Guineas with high hopes and he ran extremely well in the Guineas. And then the wheels came off last year. And, you know, it was very, very disappointing year with him last year. It's just wonderful to have him back shooting at a Group 1 again. Mm. What do you attribute that improvement this term to? Um, you know, well, certainly the end of last season when he flopped at Salisbury, which was when... Uh, it was sort of suggested that he should have a wind up. Um, then, while we was waiting to leave for the wind up, we diagnosed a fracture in his pelvis, and that was certainly there in the Salisbury race. How much longer before that that was crumbling away, we're not absolutely sure. You know, there was a callus on his pelvis developing straight after the Salisbury race. Um, so that was a big factor at the end of the season. And you know, there was lots of niggling little issues throughout. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. If I did a, a normal introduction to my special guest this week, I would be spending the next 35 minutes doing the introduction. So I'll try and keep it as, as brief as I can and get the salient points out. Uh, he's a man who started training in the early 1970s, and last night at Cork he trained yet another promising, exciting stakes winner. The progress in between times has been nothing short of extraordinary. Consider this. In the year 2000, he passed the record for most amount of winners ever trained in Ireland. That was 19 years ago, and he sailed on serenely past 3,000 winners and 4,000 winners subsequently. He's employed some of the greatest jockeys in the game. He's trained some brilliant horses. He's had champion stayers, middle-distance horses, champion sprinters as well. Not only that, he became the first European-based trainer to win a leg of the American Triple Crown and remains the only one so to do. And he also opened the floodgates for horses, completely changing the shape of one of the world's most famous races in the race that stops Australia, the Melbourne Cup, by winning it with Vintage Crop and then a decade later with Media Puzzle. I think that does it for the time being, but there is so much more. Dr Dermot <laughs> Weld, welcome to Luck on Sunday. Thank you. I'm very embarrassed before we go any further. But the point is, and I think maybe the most salient point of all of that, is that having started training in the early 1970s, mm-hmm. in your early 20s, yeah, you trained a, a stakes winner last night at Cork and your ambition for this game burns and burns and burns and burns. Why so? Uh, Because I enjoy it so much. Because, obviously, I have a lot of determination, a lot of enthusiasm, and basically I enjoy what I'm doing. Was there ever any doubt that this was what you were going to do? I know you have the veterinary qualification, but this just seems so within you, the business of training racehorses. You know, my mother and father were very, very successful trainers Mm. together, and uh, when my father held the license, it was a team effort. So from a very young age, I was involved. I was leading Amateur of Ireland a couple of times and rode winners kind of all over the world as an amateur and then qualified as a vet at 21 and started training, I think I was 22. 
how did it feel to be training at such a young age, or because you'd grown up in it, did it did it not feel like a, a big deal? Because I'd grown up in it, it didn't feel a big deal, if you know what I mean. And I'd been riding, I rode my first winter at 15 in Galway, and uh, it, it, so I was in action from a very, very young age. I know in those days I was especially young, because nowadays it's not so different, but um, yeah, I didn't, I never felt pressure. I always, um, always had confidence and um, look forward to it. Well, you are a naturally confident person. I don't mean a gung-ho person, but whenever I speak to you, you have a, mm. you have a great sort of inner, inner belief, a belief in yourself, a belief in your own ability. Where did that come from? What, who imbued you with that, do you think, mostly? I, I think it came from my mother. Um, she was a very, very confident lady. She was a brilliant person, very hard worker. I often said in my, my youth, I didn't have very much, but I didn't want for anything. So I think it was my mother that I got this um, sense of, of confidence and hard work. And, and self-belief, belief self -belief. that anything you set your mind to is possible. Most definitely. And is that where you think you got your sort of buccaneering spirit from? Yeah, I suppose so. There was always a, I always was interested in travel, and um, hence the reason I suppose I went around the world on a student ticket in the very early days uh, after I qualified as a vet. And uh, yeah, the training came on from that. But it was a happy upbringing. Very happy, very fortunate, wonderful parents. And, and tell me a little bit about family life in the early days. Well, it was tough because we didn't have many horses and uh, prize money was very, very low. And uh, you, you, you achieved by very hard work, long hours, dedication, and a lot of things haven't changed. <laughs> so you got your, your ticket to go abroad. And where was the first stop? First stop was America and from there to Australia, South Africa, back again. What was the most instructive period of that, of, uh, that, uh, of that time? I would possibly say when I worked for Tommy Smith in Australia uh, was the most interesting and fascinating time and learning from the great man and working. I worked for him in the mornings and then from a vet called Percy Sykes, uh, who was the, the he was a doyen vet of Australia, working for him in the afternoons. And uh, that was fascinating because they were two of the most brilliant people ever involved in the horse industry. Tommy Smith, uh, father of, of Gay Waterhouse, yes, of course. was yes, indeed. on the show a few weeks ago, and her admiration for him sort of shining through so mm -hmm. strongly. You talk about taskmasters and people <laughs> who could get the best out of horses and people. Have you ever met anybody like that subsequently? You meet. In life, in the horse business, you meet so many, many wonderful and great people and interesting people. But I think Tommy Smith was, was right up there. Give me, give me a flavor of him as a character. <laughs> people always talk about him, and I imagine somebody, having never met him, known him, yeah. seen him, uh, imagine someone of immense charisma. Huge charisma, but huge confidence in his own ability, and, uh, led by example, and a very, very, very hard worker. And um, seven day weeks, didn't matter but also determination to succeed. And what was Australian racing like then? We see it freely now and it's on mm. all the time. We can watch it whenever we want. What was it like in, in those days? I suppose days? prize money wasn't as good then as it is now. Uh, the jockeys were very good then. They still are, but I think that was a vintage period. Mm. Uh, you had a lot of great riders there. But uh, it has changed. Like World racing has changed so dramatically. Since I started training, and that's for me is the interesting thing is to see the changes, the progress that I always expected would happen. I always saw that world racing wouldn't be confined to Australia or Europe or America or Asia, that racing would become what well, I use the word internationalized. And I think that's where I played my small part, mm. tiny part, in a course when Vintage Crop won my first Melbourne Cup, that uh, it was beginning. It, it's, it drew the different countries together. And I never saw the world, <laughs> maybe as big as it is, I always saw that the world uh, was always possible to, for horses to race all over the world. And what happened in years to come, and of course, it's happening now. Well, this is vintage crop in, in the 93 Melbourne Cup. I, I've sensibly taken the decision to remove the commentary from this race where, <laughs> say, and the, the cup goes back to England, England which yeah. is an immediate way of alienating an entire <laughs> continent. Oh dear, yeah. so, <laughs> I always felt for the poor commentator <laughs> at, at the time. But of course, 
We had planned that for over a year. Because he'd been entered the previous year, hadn't he? He'd been entered the previous year and he'd been handicapped the previous year. He won uh, a good mile and six handicap in Tralee for me and Michael just said to me, this is our horse for, because I discussed with Michael Canaan the, the possibilities of bringing him to win a Melbourne Cup with him. He said, this is our horse to win the Melbourne Cup. And we entered him. And uh, of course, it wasn't, he was handicapped, but it wasn't possible to bring a horse to race in Australia then uh, because of the quarantine problems and the flight path of the planes had to be changed because you couldn't land on the African continent because of the danger of African horse sickness. So we had to go via North America. And then, of course, there was no quarantine facility where you could exercise a horse. So all that had to be changed. So it took about a year to do that. Took a lot of work with Canberra, with the veterinary department in Canberra, with Brussels, and eventually uh, we got the green light for go. And how excited were you? I mean, how, did it feel like a fantastic adventure? Oh, it did. It did indeed. And, and uh, like all adventures, there was ups and downs, and there was moments when it might never have happened. And very quickly, one of them happened at the very beginning. When uh, we'd fog, he had to fly from Dublin to London to pick up with the Cathay Pacific flight to bring him to Melbourne and we'd fog came in Dublin. And there was a specific time he had to go on that Sunday. We cut it very, very fine. And if he didn't go that Sunday, he could never race. And fog came in in Dublin airport. And um, the pilot of the plane to pick him up, unfortunately the plane was coming from London and it landed in Liverpool. It came to Dublin, it circled twice, and it couldn't land. And I was being kept informed exactly what was happening and um, I remember walking across the path from my house to the yard and thinking most people said the whole thing was madness anyway. And everybody said it was, you know, it was going to be a waste of money, it was ridiculous, it had never been done before, and just that was it. Yeah. And I was very relaxed about it because I said, you know, this might be just as well this, this plane can't land because maybe everybody's right. Maybe this is stupid, this can't be done. It'll save money, it'll save an awful lot of hassle, a lot of pressure, and we look at it some other time. And then I got a phone call on the old mobile phone telling me the pilot had made one last effort and he'd got in. And it was as tight as that. But these are things that happen in life in, in, and of course the rest is history. You got down to, to Melbourne and, and the day itself. Hmm. Was there any part of you that, that thought, I can't actually believe we're doing this? Because it's not something that people had hitherto considered essentially, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Australia, of course, most people thought it was ludicrous as well because the horse hadn't run since he'd won yeah. the Irish St. Ledger. Uh, in those days, a horse had to run basically on the Saturday before the race to be fit. And um, I had been very happy with his preparation, but uh, maybe he had gone under the radar a little bit because uh, his times, they hadn't, he hadn't clocked fast times, which I didn't want. But he, he went off at 28 to 1. And, uh, but I was very happy with him, and we just got him right just close to the race. I was just happy. Initially, he was a little bit dehydrated, and took him, it took him a while to get over the flight. But close to the race, I was very happy with the horse. A, a, a very special, very, very special horse for, for you. And, and he was. He was an amazing, amazing, amazing tough horse mentally as well as physically. He was, he was just a real, real good... He was the classic of what I call stare with speed. He was ideally mile and a half, mile and six horse, rather than a two mile horse, because he came, I'd always wanted to win the Gold Cup with him, and of course he ran second in the Gold Cup at Royal Ascot. He just didn't get the trip, the extra, the extra half mile. But even two miles was too far for him. He was really a mile and six horse, and that's why he won two St. Ledgers for me. Is it easy to identify mental toughness in a horse when you, you first take a, take a look at them, when they first do something for you? No, I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's easy. I think it comes as you get to know your horse and you get, because you get surprises. And the ones you think may not be tough turn out to be the ones. Mm -hmm. um, look, I won with a group filly yesterday called Taranawa. And uh, that was her second group race and she's very consistent. And in her initial stages of being tough, I wouldn't have accused her of being tough. Talented, yes, but not tough. But she's matured and developed and now she has a toughness to her. And that's one of the qualities you showed yesterday. Can you, can you train that into a horse, or is it just innate? I think you can train it into them. I think you build confidence in them. I think it's all about confidence. You were confident enough to go to Melbourne and, and win with, with Vintage Crop, but 
in essence, your second Melbourne Cup victory with Media Puzzle was more was more resonant, certainly more resonant in yeah. in Australia. Just remind me why. Well, the main reason was because of the rider, of course. And losing his brother the week before, there was a big doubt whether Damien Oliver would ride the horse or not. And even when I landed in Australia, there was a bevy of the press wanted to know who was going to ride the horse. And um, I said, let's wait and see. It'll be Damien's decision. I've made no jockey. They named a number of jockeys that were available. In fact, there he's just beating Vinnie Rowe because that for me was even more enjoyable because turning for home in that year's Melbourne Cup, um, I was pretty certain it was either going to be Vinnie Rowe or Media Puzzle was going to win. And Vinnie Rowe was the best horse I trained that didn't win the Melbourne Cup. He was second, of course, to Machiavediva yeah. trying to give her weight. Which is, yeah, pretty much impossible. You know, and he was a great stare, Vinnie Rowe, and he won four back-to-back Irish St. Ledgers from me. But it was Media Puzzle's day, and uh, it was a great day. And an uh, ex- extraordinarily special day for, for Damien Oliver and a poignant mm. day for, for his family, as you were saying. And they made a movie out of the, yeah, out of the story. With, yeah, who, 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 remind me, Brendan Gleeson played Brendan you. Brendan Gleeson played me, and Brendan, I think, did it very well. Um, he came down, he spent a couple of days with us, and uh, yeah, the movie went very good. It was uh, shown uh, for quite a long while. It used to be shown on, on different airlines <laughs> for about a year, and I get a lot of comments and emails and things. But overall, I thought, considering the budget they had, it was a good job. Did you quite enjoy that? The I idea did. of a, a bit of an A-lister playing you in a uh, movie. Who wouldn't? Let's face yeah, it. Exactly. Who wouldn't? Exactly. I thought it was nice. I, I thought it was nice. I, I enjoyed this. Um, I equally enjoyed. It. I was fortunate. I wrote a book on uh, vintage crop, uh, vintage crop against all odds, and got that got to number five in the non-fiction list in Ireland. So I was proud of that. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell, Dubai. Aidan, many thanks for your time today. We're at the launch of Longines Irish Champions Weekend and it's a proper way to conclude the Irish flat season. Yeah, no, absolutely, David. We're um, so lucky um, to have it at this time of the year. It's the perfect situation, I think, for any festival racing anywhere in the world. Um, all the horses have kind of decided at their distances and they've all settled down into their own groups and like their unbelievable championship races there in Group 1s, Group 2s and Group 3s. I think it's uh, unbelievable for us and to have um, facilities like the Curra and Leperstown um, to be able to showcase them at the same time is incredible, really. And the fixtures themselves, both days, they've evolved over the course of the years. And if you go back to the 80s, when Sadler's Wells winning the champion stakes at the Phoenix Park, his son Galileo won it for you. And you've so many sons and daughters of all of those horses right through. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, obviously, we're just so lucky to have him and then to have uh, John and Sue and Michael and Dorian and Gay and Derek. So it, and they're, they, like, we're just so lucky to have them that they're, so happy to invest the money in uh, bloodstock in this part of the world and in people. Um, but like, like you said, we're so lucky to have so many Galileos, which is a, is a massive advantage. He's, uh, he's the most incredible stallion that probably ever was or ever will be, and his influence in both stallions and mares are, are going to be immense forever and ever. And what sets him apart from other good horses like him? Actually, I think uh, probably is they're so genuine. It's what's inside in their mind is more so than outside in their physical part that you can see. It's their will to win, I think, is just uh, very uh, different, uh, extraordinary, really. And multiple Group 1 races over the course of the weekend. We might start, first of all, with the Quipco Champion Stakes. Uh, we just saw Magical Work today. Is the plan for her to go to York and her and possibly a few of her stable companions to go for that race. Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's the plan. She's had a little break and she's just back in good order again and she hopefully is to start in York and then come back to Leperstown. That's what we're thinking of at the moment. And would she have a, a couple of stable companions to go with her in that race? I think so. Uh, like Obviously, Anthony Van Dyke is possible. Uh, Japan is possible. Circus Maximus, Magna Grises. They're all possible for those races and like they all seem to be in good form and are going through their work very good at the moment. And it's a very fair track. It sorts out the, the best horses, and generally the best horse always wins at Leopardstown. Oh, absolutely. But you have to have tactical speed as well. You have to be tough. You have to stay in. You just, uh, just need a very good horse, really. And Hermosa, is the plan for her to go for the matron stakes? Uh, yes, uh, she's very well, going back to a mile. Um, 
we were she came out Goodwood Wells, which we were very happy about. Uh, but uh, no, we were very happy with her, and that is the plan to go back to a mile in Leperstown. And just touching back on the Champion Stakes, it is a race that can kind of establish a stallion in terms of their career after racing. It's the it's the optimum distance. Uh, the good mile and a half horses can drop back, and the good milers can step up to the mile and quarter ten furlongs. Yeah, no, it's perfect distance really, and like we've seen over the years. Um, Horses have, have won the champion stakes and what they have went on to do, but you have to have a very good horse to do it. They have to have they have to be able to get a mile and a quarter really well, nearly a mile and a half, but they have to have class to be milers. So it is it's the ultimate test and all the good horses go there uh, every year. The ratings of it is are incredible really when you add them up. And how are th- how are the plans for Sunday working out the Coma Group um, Ledger first of all? Yeah, very happy. Uh, Capri Southern France are definite possibles at the moment. Uh, uh, Q Gardens probably won't make it but he'll hopefully go straight to the ledger um, he'll probably go away for a race course gallop but we're happy w- where they are at the moment and the two year olds they're beginning to sort themselves out um, Siskin won the, the Phoenix Stakes last weekend but I think once the, the horses step up to seven furlongs it begins to sort out the, the possible Guineas contenders for next year um, yeah no absolutely um, yeah, that, that's when it all happens um, uh, like we, we we were happy with our horses that ran in the hinds, and and we've been happy with um, we we've been happy with the like of Armory in that sense, you know. So um, no, hopefully uh, they get through their next uh, Armory will go to the Cora for the futurity, and um, we're not sure the horse that ran in the in the morn in the hinds will we stay at six or will we step up? But we we'll see closer to the time. And will Love go for the Moigler? Uh, she is. That's the plan, David. She goes to the uh, Deputant first and uh, then go from there to the Magla. That's what we're thinking of at the moment. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.